What a great song to prepare our hearts for the message and just this idea that we want more and we want God to set a fire in our hearts so that we can do the work that he's called us to do. And so a couple of things before we dig into the message this morning. The first thing is I just want to invite you to pray for our leadership, our elders. Um, We'll be meeting Tuesday to make some financial decisions about our annual budget and we'll also be just talking about what God's leading us toward in the fall and how to best shepherd and care and lead the people that God has entrusted into our care, you, our our, our sheep, and that we would be good shepherds. And so would you please just pray for us about that? Uh, Second, there's a lot of scripture today, so grab something to write these down so that you can go back and look at them again uh, when you get an opportunity and a chance. And then third, just know that we're talking about Paul, and I might say Paul or Saul, and they're just interchangeable. We can, uh, you'll, you'll know I'm talking about the same person, and so just know that, all right? And so let's dig in. At at one point or another, everyone who follows Jesus ends up asking this question, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? And the reason that we ask this question is because we think God should be doing one thing, but he's doing another thing. Or, Or in other words, what we thought God is supposed to do, he isn't doing. And so often we're left confused and we're left disappointed and frustrated, even doubting God and the reality of God and that God is love and God is caring. God is all of these things. And so as we jump into more of Paul or, or Saul's conversion in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, we will see the things didn't go smoothly for Paul. As a matter of fact, we're going to cover nearly 17 years of his life in this little section of Scripture, and I imagine, I imagine that throughout his life, throughout these 17 years, there were moments that Paul looked to God and said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so if you remember from last week, God told Ananias, I want you to go I want you to find Paul. I've converted him. He's now at Judas' house in Straight Street in Damascus. And so I want you to go and I want you to find Paul, the number one enemy of the church of the day. And so Ananias begins questioning God and saying, listen, I'm scared. Don't you know what this guy's been doing? Don't you know that he's been killing and arresting and bringing people to the chief priests who were preaching the gospel? And so since Paul was arresting people who claimed to follow Jesus, look what God says to Ananias. And this is going to be our key verse in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. It says this, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Whoa, I mean, there is something that is so incongruent with this verse. In one part of the verse, we have God saying, I have chosen him. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And in the very next verse, we have God saying, and he is going to suffer. And in our our mindset, these two don't go together. Isn't chosen and isn't suffering an oxymoron? I mean, these things are incongruent. They don't work. Chosen and suffer don't go together. They're, they're, They're not together, especially in our Western culture, because we believe that any suffering is actually from the enemy. We attribute suffering to the enemy. And so I believe, I believe with all of my heart, we need hope. We need hope. And many of us are asking, God, what are you doing? 
God, what are you doing? And I, and I think that we look around at the world and everything around us, the chaos, the uncertainty, the obscurity, the frustration, the, the riots, the protests, the political tension, all of these things. And we look around and we say, God, what are you doing? And I think what we can do is we can learn some things from Paul's life especially these 17 years that that are covered in just a few verses in Acts chapter 9. And so we can find hope in what God is doing in our lives right now. We can find hope in what God is trying to accomplish in our life right now. In the midst of the chaos and the craziness and everything that's happening, we can find hope and and believe that God is working and He's doing things. For a couple years, I know I've been praying for God to create this great awakening of faith and in, in people across our community and, and across our state and our nation, across the globe. And as I've prayed this for the past several weeks, I think that maybe we might have an opportunity right now for this spiritual awakening that could happen. But we might miss it because it doesn't come the way we think it should come. It doesn't come the way that we expect it to come. And I want us to see that God was working in Paul's life. And the way he worked in Paul's life can give us hope in what God is doing in the lives around us, our lives right now today. I believe hope is one of the most powerful, powerful forces on the planet. And we can find that hope today through some observations that we make in the text. The first observation is this about Paul's life. Paul was chosen. Paul was chosen and opposed. He was chosen and opposed. Ananias, he goes to Paul. He prays for Paul. Paul, things like scales come off of his eye. He regains his sight. And suddenly he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately Saul is baptized. He eats some food. He is strengthened. And everything was easy and successful. And the doors opened right up for him. And and, and he was able to preach and teach and go wherever he wanted and do whatever. And everybody loved him and cared about him, embraced him and adored him. Actually, that's not how it went. No, not at all. Look what happened in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, which is really cool because where does he go? He goes to his home turf, he goes to the synagogue, and he begins preaching Jesus, right? And what we know about Paul and his missionary journeys is that every time he entered a new city, where did he go? He went to the synagogue to preach to the Jews first. This was his missiology. This is what he did to accomplish the mission of God. It goes on. So he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. But they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests, to arrest them? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he, he attempted, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. And they didn't believe, they couldn't possibly believe that God would change this man to be a disciple. And so after Paul turned his life to Jesus, it wasn't easy. After he was baptized, God didn't just open every door of opportunity for him. And when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he didn't just be able to preach and everybody received his message. No, Paul's message was rejected. His his motives were questioned. And he was nearly killed for what he did. And so his his message was rejected. His motives were questioned. And and he was nearly killed for, for, for preaching. 
And, and I need you to notice something really important because the worst part of this for Paul was that most of this came from his fellow religious Jews. The, the gospel hadn't gone to the Gentiles without a few, with, with, except for a few exceptions, like the Ethiopian. But of all the people, of all the people Paul preached to, they should understand. Of all the people, he had credibility. They should have listened to him. They knew him. And this is the problem. The problem of kicking our own when they are down isn't new to the church. This is something that the church has experienced for centuries. Some of the greatest criticism and some of the biggest names that I've been called, I've received from Christians, from church people. Not from the world. Not from my secular neighbors. My non-Christian friends. Some of the worst names that I've been called, some of the most greatest criticism that I've ever received as a pastor has been from the people that are in our church. And verse 26 says, Paul attempted to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. They didn't believe, they couldn't understand how God could change this man who had been arresting Christians, killing Christians, uh, been against this idea of the church. And so how do we handle this? I mean, seriously, we need to ask this question. How do we handle criticism? How do we handle be, be, belittlement and rejection? And how do we handle having our motives questioned? And, and how, do we, how do we handle being accused of, of things that aren't even true? Look what Paul does in verse 27. But Barnabas took him, and he brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, doing what? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And here it is again. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And so when Paul faces this oppression, when he's opposed and he faces this oppression, what does he do? Two times the verses say that he preached boldly. Once he said he spoke. Why? Because when he encountered Jesus and, he, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, this is what people who are filled with the Holy Spirit do. They preach, they share, they speak about all that they've seen and heard that Jesus is doing. Do you remember from Acts chapter 1? And so notice that, that when he went and spoke with the religious leaders, who did he go speak to? He went to the people that Stephen was a part of. That's bold. That's courageous. What if Paul stopped preaching? What if, what if Paul stopped going when things got hard? Let me ask you a question. Whose life is depending on your boldness? Whose life depends on your boldness, on our boldness? There, there are some things so important that they require extreme actions. And the gospel is one of those because it's about eternity. It's about life and death, heaven and hell. It is worth being mocked and laughed at because it's so important. And too often I hear people, I don't want to share my story because I'm embarrassed by my story. I don't want to share my story. I don't want to speak of justice and mercy. We don't want to talk about the reality that Jesus is risen and alive because we're afraid. We're afraid that people will think poorly of us. We're afraid of what they'll say. We, we don't want to engage in those conversations because we don't know what people's response will be to us, whether it's hostility or, or, or friendship. We're afraid to do that, but I'm so confused because something as important as the gospel message of Jesus that is a life or death, heaven or hell kind of thing, we're afraid to talk about. But we'll certainly make sure that people will know what political side we're sold out to. 
and we'll make sure that, that we'll scream injustice about the riots and the protests, and we'll demand that things go back to the way they were, and we'll call foul loudly in our culture wars. But we're afraid of being mocked, of being laughed at, of being judged when it comes to sharing, sharing our faith with our non-Christian neighbor who's headed to hell. We're afraid that we might be embarrassed when we share the story of life change that we experience with our coworker because they might not receive us. We're afraid to share with our family, the lost members of our extended family, about the reality that Jesus is alive and He's the hope and the light of the world and He can make everything different and that we can have this inheritance in heaven where the the, the nastiness of the world drifts away, doesn't exist. Listen, this is life and death stuff. The gospel is worth being mocked and laughed at. It's a matter of life and death. Are we confusing the things that matter most with the things that really don't matter as much? Paul understood this, and so he was chosen and opposed. Here's the second part. He was chosen and he waited. He was chosen and waited. It took nearly two decades, two decades for God to prepare Paul to do the work that God wanted him to do. Look at this. You find the little hint. Luke does this. Dr. Luke, he gives us a little detail. Here it is in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. It says this, when many days had passed. When many days had passed. Interestingly enough, many days actually equals three years. How do we know that? How do we know that it took three years for for the apostles to first meet Paul? Well, one of the cool things about the book of Acts is that we get the story within the story. So we get Luke's summary of what happened in the church and in Paul and Peter and the life of the disciples and how the gospel spread and the church thrived and grew across the nations. But we also get so much of Paul's writings where Paul's able to fill in some of the gaps that we have, especially the the chronological life of Paul. And so how do we know it was three years? Well, he tells us in the book of Galatians. Look at this, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when he, meaning Jesus, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This is what Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away. For three years I went away to Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so after three years, Paul goes back to Jerusalem to finally meet one of the apostles, Peter, and and, and Jesus' brother, James. And all of this is summarized in Acts chapter 9, and it's almost as if in Acts chapter 9 we read it, it's one day after another day after another day after another day. No, 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 no. Paul wanted to meet the disciples, right? But Peter and Jesus' brother, they weren't so sure. They're thinking, we don't know for sure, Paul. We don't know you, and what we do know of you isn't very good. I don't know that we can trust you to, to do this. And so for 15 days he spent time, he spent time with Peter and with James, And then after 15 days, look what happens in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 1. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us as Christians is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And so Paul, if you notice, he couldn't escape his past, his reputation. He couldn't get behind it. But then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, we have this. And then after 14 years, so we have three years, 15 days, 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And my question that I've been asking is, what did Paul do for those 17 years? And honestly, we're not entirely sure. We have some information about what was going on because of Paul's interview with Dr. Luke in, in Acts chapter 22. We also know that in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes a little bit about what's going on. Look at this, Acts chapter 22, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly. They will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garment of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, 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 for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Go, because I'm going to prepare you to do the mission that I've prepared for you. And we can see that God was continuing with Paul to clarify his mission to reach the Gentiles. And we know that Paul received clear and very crucial insights about Jesus so that he could share those insights with, with the people he was preaching to. But we also know during that 14-year period, the 17-year period, he was also persecuted. People tried to kill him. Look what he recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night as I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You want to avoid for sure asking Paul, how are you doing? How are you doing, Paul? Because he's certainly going to tell you. But this is what I want you to understand. God took a minimum, a minimum of 14 years. More likely, he took 17 years to prepare Paul for the work that God had in store for him. And what I want us to understand is this is not uncommon when we read through the entire Bible, especially the historical accounts of some of the characters in the Old Testament, we will see that they had a waiting period, that they had to wait for God to prepare them. David, he was anointed, if you remember, as a young man, but he continued to take care for his, his father's herd. And then at some point, he's able to play the harp before Saul. But then Saul realizes that he's the one who's anointed king, and, and, and David has to run for his life. He has to run for his life because Saul wants to kill him, right? And so then you'll remember that he had to run for his life for 10 years before God was even beginning to do things in his life. Joseph, Joseph was in slavery for 20 years. And you remember Joseph, he had a vision that his brothers would bow down to him, but he gets sold into slavery. 20 years he had to wait. What about Abraham and Sarah? Abraham was 90 years old. Sarah was 80 years old before the promise that God had given them would be fulfilled. 
waiting is normal when it comes to the work of God. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, are we complaining about how long God is taking with us? Are we complaining about how long God is taking to prepare us for whatever He has? And this is what I want you to know. Between verses 25 and 26 in Acts chapter 9, there's this blank space. Blank space. And it represents 14 to 17 years of Paul's life. And I know for our stories too, your story and my story, I know for a fact that we have blank space in our life stories. And if you didn't before 2020, we can thank 2020 because there's definitely blank space in our life this year. And I want you to know that it's in our blank space, in that white space between stories, that God develops our character, that God works and, and we learn character, we, we learn patience, we, we learn that, that, that God's doing a work in us to prepare us for the work that He's prepared for us. Yes, blank spaces are lonely and they are frustrating, they're sad, they're ugly, they're hard, they're disappointing. But this, this is where God does some of His greatest teaching. This is where we learn so much from Him. But we want things fast. We want things now, instantaneously. We want it done right the first time when we want it done quick and we want to be satisfied. But this is not customarily how God works. Paul was chosen and opposed. He was chosen and he had to wait. But Paul was also chosen and he suffered. He suffered. Ananias was told by God that Paul was chosen to suffer. And I ask this question, why? Why? And here's the answer, suffering. Suffering, pain is one of God's primary training tools for His disciples. Suffering and pain is where God does some of His greatest work. And this doesn't sit well with us, especially if we've been sold a false gospel. If you've been sold a gospel that if you'll turn your life to Jesus, then everything's going to be easy and everything will go perfectly. It's like a, a magic pixie dust that will fall on your life and everything's going to be easy from then on and it's going to be good once I surrender to Jesus. I want you to know that's not true. Jesus Himself said, you're going to suffer for my name. If you follow me, you will suffer. People will hate you because of me. Jesus himself said that. And some of us have been sold this false gospel that if we just turn our lives to Jesus, it'll be easy, it'll be good, and then we won't have to worry about anything because God's going to make everything just peachy, just perfect. But I also want you to know that suffering doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Sometimes we attach suffering to sin and say, well, well, that person, since they have so much suffering and pain, they, they must be uh, really big sinners. That's not always true. It's not always attached. Sometimes there's pain because of our sin, but God, God doesn't inflict suffering and pain because of our sin. I want you to realize that suffering could mean that God is preparing us as Christians, that He could be using our suffering and our pain to prepare us. We look again at Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen, catch this word, instrument, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. I love this word instrument because it literally translates vessel or jar. Vessel or jar. And vessels or jar, they have no power in and of themselves. They're not worth anything on their own. However, they are conduits of power for something else. 
Vessels and jars hold something valuable. They contain something of power and worth and value. This is what an instrument is. Paul wrote about this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Look at it. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, Paul saw himself as a conduit, as a capable tool for God to use, a vessel, a jar, with something powerful inside. And God wanted Paul to become this vessel of his power. This is why Saul the mighty had to become Paul the small. So look again in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of whose? Of mine. God said, he is mine. And what I want us to understand when we look at Acts chapter 9, verse 15, there is a lesson for us. And we cannot mistake, we cannot get confused, we cannot buy into the lies of the world because there is a competition for our hearts. There is a war and a battle that exists for our hearts. And God wants our heart totally and completely to belong to him. And there's too much fighting going on in our own souls with everything else around us because there's a war, there's a battle, there's a fight for our heart and God wants us to love Him and trust Him and obey Him above anything and everything else. This way He can use us the way that He wants to use us. So understand this. God chooses us to Himself first and then to a task. God chooses us to Him first and then to be a part of his mission, then to do his work. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. As Western and as American Christians, we're really good at the task. We're really good at the deeds. We're really good at doing the work. We're really good at doing work for God. And we neglect the things that are so important to God, like our love for Him, our trust in Him, our obedience to Him, our devotion to Him, becoming like Him, journeying to be like Jesus and emulating Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did. And if you want to know what God thinks about our deeds, if you want to know what God thinks about our works, you want to think what God, know what God thinks about our worship without having all of our hearts, go look at Isaiah chapter 1. Start about verse 11. And you only have to read to about verse 17 to have a really clear picture of what God thinks about our deeds and our works and our worship without our heart. God doesn't like it. He detests it. Isaiah even says, God says he hates our deeds and our works and our worship without our hearts. We're really good at the works and the deeds and doing the work of God, but are we journeying and letting God do the work that He wants to do in our souls so that we can belong to Him 100% completely and totally without being at war with anything else? What God is doing in me is just as significant and, and as important as what God wants to do through me. And that's true for you too. And so God, He prepares us in our pains 
He prepares us in our disappointments. He prepares us in our obscurity and the uncertainty and the hardships and in the sadness that exists in our life. And sometimes, sometimes when we're in this space, it's the best place for God to tear down and to destroy some of our most valued and adored idols. Idols? What idols? Well, they're the things that are at war with our heart, our wealth, our pride, our possessions, our rights. I can't tell you how many times it's my right to do this, our work, and how important work is. Our family, we can even idolize our family, the church. We can idolize the church and our education. I mean, what is God at war? What does He have to fight for? And there's times that I say things to us as a pastor, and that's because I am committed to being a minister of the gospel of Jesus. And sometimes I can be accused of being too political or not political enough, not being clear enough, being whatever. Listen, I am with God and I am joining God for the fight of our hearts. That's what I'm committed to. And this is what I know. We demand to understand when God's doing something that we don't like, when God makes us feel uncomfortable, when something doesn't work the way we think it should work, we demand when we shake our fist at God, we say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? We want the silver lining and everything. And we want to know what God is doing, but we simultaneously demand that God explain it to me because I deserve to know. God, what are you doing? Explain it to me. And the reason, the reason we're asking the question, God, what are you doing, is because we feel out of control, and it's control that we should have surrendered to him anyway. And so what we see in Acts, and with Dr. Luke here, the investigator, he gives us a snapshot, just a picture to the question, God, what are you doing? What are you doing when they're trying to kill Paul? What are you doing when Paul has to run for his life? What are you doing when Paul has to, to, has to be rejected by his own people? God, what are you doing? And what happens is Luke gives us just a little snapshot in verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. It says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Man, there's so much in that verse. But this is the reality. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said. Remember, he ascended to heaven and he said, I'm now establishing my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he gave instructions to the disciples who were looking on as he ascended to heaven. He said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's being fulfilled. The mission that God set out was being fulfilled. It's being accomplished. And some of it's being accomplished through pain and through suffering. But the church was thriving. And the church was growing. And the church was accomplishing the mission of God. So let me, let me bring some application to us. There's a book, and the book is called The Road Less Traveled. And this book is a fascinating read. It's an older read. It's by M. Scott Peck. But in chapter 1, page 1, this is what he says. He says, life is difficult. He says, this is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see the truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, 
Once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan, more or less, incessantly, noisily or subtly about the enormity of their problems, their burdens and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief noisily or subtly that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be and that has somehow been especially visited upon them or else upon their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, or even their species and not upon others. He says, I know about this moaning because I've done my share. (laughs) Then he starts the next paragraph with this phrase. Life is a series of problems. And we accept that. And when we accept it, we can transcend it. Because this is what I want you to know. In a journey of becoming like Jesus, it's not easy. And it's not pleasant. It's actually really uncomfortable because when God begins to confront our idols, the things that we worship, the things that He has to fight for our hearts over, the things that become more important, when God wants to prepare us to accomplish His mission, to go into the world and make disciples, to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then when we ask God to solve our problems, guess what? The process of tearing down those idols and the process of preparing for the mission and the process of God helping us with our problems, it hurts. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's not intended to be easy. Think about it. As humans, we'll do everything to avoid pain. Everything to avoid pain and suffering. But man, ask somebody who's trying to restore their marriage if it's easy. Ask somebody who's trying to get out of debt if it's easy. Ask somebody who's pleaded to God, God, help me beat this addiction if it's easy. Ask, ask somebody who's trying to restore the broken relationship that they have with their children if it's easy. It's not. Wasn't intended to be because when God begins to do the work, the surgery in our soul, the fighting for our soul and our hearts, it hurts. And so here's a couple of basic applications for us. First, we glorify God by what we do for Him, and as important or even more important, by becoming like Him. By becoming like Him. How are you being challenged as a person to become like Jesus? especially in the blanks of your life, in the gaps in your life. And do not let what's happening in our community, in our cities, in our state, our nation, keep you from becoming like Jesus. And I'm going to be real. If, if you're watching news and you're listening to talk radio and it makes you angry and bitter and entitled, turn it off. Turn it off. It's not helping you be like Jesus. If, if you're fighting to get back into the building because that's what church is, you've missed the point. The Spirit lives in the temple of God. What is the temple of God? Not this building. The temple of God is our souls. 
and it should be driving us to church, our souls, every moment of every day as we pursue to become like Him. Don't let what's happening with school and with work and, and with all the things that you're trying to juggle and manage keep you from becoming like Jesus. Another application point, God prepares us in our pain and He prepares us in our disappointment and the obscurity and the uncertainty and the hardships and the sadness That's where God does some of his greatest work. And the question is this, what do you think God is preparing you for as you reflect on the pain that you're facing? What is God wanting to do with your life? Here's another one. In our suffering, God destroys some of our most valued and adored idols. (laughs) Those idols... And what things, what stuff in your life have you made more important than Jesus? What are they? Is it your pride? Your wealth? Your family? Like, like, what have we put our hope in and our trust in that will fail us? Here's the deal. Could it be our ideologies? The ideologies that we're willing to fall on the sword for? I mean, after all, ideology derived from the word idolatry. And do we understand what ideology is? It's based on taking something out of creation's totality, raising it above creation, and making creation serve the ideology. In other words, that's what I'm trying to say. An ideology assumes that this idol, this idol has the capacity to save us from real or perceived evil in the world. What is it that we turn to? Because when we're saying, God, we're not for sure what you're doing, and so I need to put my hope and trust in the stock market or my job or my wealth. I need to put my hope and trust in my family or my friends or my education. Because those things are going to get me through. Or God, this is going to get really bad, so I've got to put my hope and trust in the stockpile of stuff that I have. Because I need to be okay if things really get bad. Those are idols. They're idols that we worship. They're idols that we adore because we believe they're going to save us. And it reduces God and what Jesus has done as least important to us. And so listen, what ideology keeps you from experiencing pain and suffering where God can do some of his deepest and hardest and most needed work in us? Let me end this way. This is what Paul said. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in the jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given out to death for Jesus' sake. Why? so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke. 
we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise up with Jesus us and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, (laughs) this light, momentary pain and suffering is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. We don't look to the things that are seen. Everything around us, we look to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And what are you looking at? What do you see? We're going to sing a song. I want you to sing out. I want you to stay with us. I want you to be able to pray with us. But I want you to be challenged right now to fix your eyes on Jesus, who is unseen, but he is, he, is, he is ruling his kingdom. And he's at war for our hearts. Let's sing.